Good morning, data leaders. Paul here. And today we're with Jane Urban, who is the Senior Director of Commercial Data Management and Strategy over at Takeda. Great to have you with us. Yes, thanks for having me. To start with, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Jane. Sure. Yeah. So I lead the commercial data function for Takeda in the US. Um, and commercial for a pharmaceutical company is really everything after the FDA approves a product. So this includes our medical patient services, managed markets, and then also sales and marketing teams, all the data they need. Um, and we work on both the kind of strategy of what data to get and, and why, as well as actually executing on that strategy and getting the data in um, and then mastering it. We also have a master mm. data management team. So it's a broad remit of folks on my team. Awesome. And uh, you, you've been with Takeda for about six years now. Uh, what have you been up to before then? Yeah. So before, so this role I've been doing for about two years. Um, before that, I actually got this very unique opportunity to work on the integration of Takeda purchasing Shire and the commercial operations functions that both companies had kind of helping to integrate them together. So really unique perspective, really unique opportunity to look at all of the different commercial operations functions more broadly. And then also obviously find a need for more support for data, um, which is where I ended up focusing in 2020. And then before that, even at Takeda, because six years, I've done three totally different things. Um, my first sort of stint at Takeda was to build out the data infrastructure for one of our flagship products, Intivio, which is a really amazing drug for uh, folks with Crohn's and colitis. So it's kind of a biologic um, with a relatively large patient population and needed a lot of infrastructure build out with data just because different kind of product for Takeda to launch. Um, so really great opportunity to build and grow a team there. And then more recently built and grew a team uh, with the data function that I lead now. So a couple mm. different chances to build and grow, which is kind of my favorite. So I've been very lucky with the, the different opportunities I've had at Takeda for sure. Yeah, brilliant. I'm sure we'll talk about the, the the challenges that came with the merger and with, with building out that data infrastructure later on. Uh, yes. Just talking a bit more more general to start with, though, how do you see data analytics today? Just in the, in you know as we as we sit here in, in August 2022, um, what do you think about the state of the data function in big businesses from from your experience? You know, I think it's in a really big moment of change across, certainly across the industry I'm in, which is all the healthcare pharma space, but really across all the industries. You know, when I talk with colleagues in finance and insurance and even in, in consumer product uh, spaces, there's this real pivot toward data as an asset, data as like a core part of the business and also data turning into products, which is also a really different way to think about data. And so I think there's actually a neat, kind of overlap and nexus of software and data coming together. So that mindset of developing new software products and kind of shipping them, I think is coming to the data space and it's really merging together a lot of different skills. Um, I think you know you see data science and data engineering sort of subspecialties of data that did not really exist even 10 years ago. So mm. There's quite a lot of change that I see coming across the data and analytics space and the power of data too, like the way that we can use data, especially in the United States where we have a little more flexibility. We don't have the GDPR restrictions that happen in Europe. Um, I think there's obviously double-edged sword there. Some things are really great about that, but other things are, are a little bit more risky from a, a privacy perspective. Mm. However, it does afford us the ability to really connect a lot of different data together to tell 
a more effective story and hopefully have a more effective and, you know, exciting experience for consumers of whatever you're using data to engage with. So whether that's giving people the right messaging at the right time or alerting them to something they didn't know before and using data to do that. I think there's just a lot of really exciting opportunities with data and analytics that I've seen, especially accelerating over the last couple of years. And I think that's part of what's really nice about being in this space. I'm obviously a little biased, but Mm -hmm. I think this is a space that has uh, a lot of potential to really shift and pivot over the next few years, I think as well. So yeah, it's a big time for data. Data is having like a pretty big moment, I feel like. And with that in mind, where do you think are the biggest opportunities for uh, aspiring data leaders to to really leverage the, the the data as an asset, as you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. I think the the first thing is is actually a bit of um, I think you know selling and hype for data in an organization. I know a lot of the folks that I speak with who are in similar types of roles trying to build a data function. They have to kind of sell it to the senior leadership, especially folks who maybe haven't used data as much as a as a tool in their toolkit. So if you have senior leaders who kind of had more of a, um, a non-data-driven way of working and you're trying to ask them to use more data to make decisions, there's a bit of skepticism there. So I think that's part of the first step is really making sure that you have that senior leadership buy-in and and support because this Mm. is a change management exercise above all it's really about people and process first and then the technology that's going to come with data is is coming but i think if you don't start with the people in the process it won't really matter which technologies you go after it'll it'll be challenging Mm. for you to use so that's what i would say is unfortunately which is hard with data people data enthusiasts as i call it um sometimes to try to go and sell that's pretty far away from the core competency of a, of a data leader or data professional. But that, I think, is what's needed right now in that mm. moment of transition and change that's happening. Yeah, and I, th- I think what you're touching on there is, is the changing of the language around data, right? And this is yes. something we, we talk about quite a lot here at the, the Data Storyteller, specifically when, for example, with data literacy versus data fluency. You know, you can it's, it's a much easier case to make for people that to say that that, that you're, you need to be fluent rather than you need to be literate because that implies that you're illiterate, right? And it's just all these psychological, <laughs> as you said, you start with yes. the people in the process and the technology comes after, just like you said earlier with the, the data infrastructure. Um, you mentioned Teams, which you think that uh, obviously of course you work with people on the on these these technological changes but the 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 people side is still at the heart of that so um yeah a lot of great stuff and you mentioned like uh getting the right message at the right time and uh selling and 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 hyping up and again this is what we 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 love to talk about here so uh, what do you think are the best ways for data analytics leaders to gain more influence within the business you know, it's it actually maybe is more simple than people expect. I think it's just having good conversations with your peers, with your sort of diagonal leadership, with your manager, all of those things. Um, and depending on where you are in the organization, um, like for me, I'm working with kind of the head of our commercial operations group and then the business unit leaders, right? The folks that are kind of driving the um, different franchises of, of drugs and Takeda's portfolio. Um, But I think having frequent and honest conversations, I think one-on-one especially, because some of these senior leaders, they really do have a lot of questions. They want to learn. They're excited, but they're also a little nervous about not knowing what they don't know and and asking perhaps a question that they, you know, they feel like they're asking a dumb question when when they're not. They're asking a super reasonable question 
Um, so that's something I think I've spent a lot of time just talking with folks, helping them feel comfortable with what, you know, what are we talking about with all this? Because there's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of terminology in the data space. And so I tend to use a lot of metaphors. Um, I'm partial to metaphors around cooking and food. Mm. Um, but I think those things sort of help people ground themselves on, okay, I know what that is. I know you're telling me this is like that. And that's just really helpful to kind of anchor yeah. folks who maybe haven't had experience with data. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that with the, uh, the the storytelling techniques that you mentioned, metaphor, uh, allegory, selling, you know, pitching, essentially, it's um, you know, a very useful skill for anyone, anyone to have. And uh, I mean, from, if we if we took it to the ground level, when you when you have these conversations with senior leaders, what kind of uh, qualities do you bring there? Do you do you tend to go in with a with humility, with a, a bit of courageousness, or certainness, maybe maybe a sprinkling of all of these, or, or something else? <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely a mix. You know, I think the first thing is definitely to go in saying that there's a lot of really great things that this leader, whoever it is, can bring to the conversation. I mean, their expertise is super valuable in giving that business context, understanding the customer, um, understanding what kinds of situations are occurring out in the kind of selling space or in the, you know, whatever area they're in in their leadership role. I think the other piece though, is also trying to understand what I can do for them, right? What's in it for them, right? And that to me is always kind of classic, what's in it for me kind of conversation mm. where you're saying, here are some things that can be easier, better, faster. Um, you can make more confident decisions, right? Like it's not saying you wouldn't still make the decision, of course, but how nice is it to have something behind it to say, well, we we checked with this or we have you know data that backs this up that says this is the right way to go and that's the less good way to go. And so I, I think that's part mm. of it too, is what's the value proposition for that leader where data can actually provide value. And it doesn't have to be like an exact number, like an ROI. I think people tend to go straight to this idea of I have to calculate an ROI to be able to sell the value proposition of data. And that's really hard to do, right? To say that this data yielded this increase in sales is a really mm. far away stretch. So instead, I think it's talking about making better decisions, more informed decisions, almost like a peace of mind concept, right? You feel more confident and better about the decision you made because you had this data, which I think does have value. It just may not be attributable directly, like an ROI kind of calculation. Mm. Um, so that's a bit of what I think about too, is kind of what's in it for for them. What do they get out of having this data in their world? Because it's it's definitely an investment to to put this infrastructure together and, and to build out a data function for sure. Mm. And, and I like to, to think about it like when you when you walk into that meeting, it's about painting a picture. You can't just write, you know, here's here's the numbers, you know, here's the hardcore. Yes. You think about like a big battle painting. There's like a lot of stuff going on, a lot of nuance to it. There's a there's a lot of, and that's what makes a good story, right? And that's when when you bring these storytelling techniques in and and you and you, you you create this narrative around. Okay, you know, yes, we're, we're we want this, but here's why, and here's how it's going to benefit you, and here's how it's going to benefit the business. And um, yeah, I, I love that. Super interesting. And 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 how important do you think these soft skills are for data leaders when we talk about communications, influence, persuasion, uh, specifically in terms of building these kind of relationships that yield results for everyone? Yeah, I think building something new like this, where you're really blazing a trail, it is, it's undervalued probably because I know there's a lot of emphasis on certifications and you know knowledge of different software platforms and knowledge of different coding languages. That's often what people write in job descriptions for data leaders. And that's not wrong. I mean, it's helpful to know about all those things. And certainly 
I think there's a bit of a need for credibility at this point in the maturity of a data function. Most functions are built by people who were in them, you know, kind of out of them. However, I do think there's just like any other function that has evolved and has matured. If you look at, you know, finance or HR or um, other operational functions or even marketing and sales, those sorts of functions, eventually leadership isn't as, as deep in the actual subject matter expertise levels, but is instead about, you know, cross-functional partnership and, and the soft skills of selling the concepts and and sort of getting folks on board with what you're doing. So I do think mm. there's a pivot there um, that probably the value of having deep coding expertise and being able to quickly build something like a software engineering background may not make sense for a data leader over time. Um, and even software engineering is relatively new. So mm. it makes sense that most of the folks that are leading right now have that background or have spent time in the trenches, you know, doing this work so that they have that credibility. But you think about leadership in other functional areas, people move around, right? They do different things and they can pivot from different areas. So I see that as maybe the next journey of the maturity of the data function would be that you have folks who are not as data deep, but have an appreciation for data, mm. have worked with it for a number of years from kind of the the cheering sidelines, if you will. And now they're interested in helping lead a, a group of professionals. So I think in the beginning, it's um, definitely important to have soft skills, but I think it's more important to have that credibility right now. Mm. And then over time, I think it'll pivot toward more about cross-functional soft skill and maybe a little less about data expertise, um, just like every other function that's matured. Yeah. There's, you know, people can go into HR having been in a totally different area and it, it's not that unusual, you know? Mm. Yeah, and I think that works both ways as well. If you if you are a senior business leader, you, you need to have that open-mindedness and that humility to be able to accept what someone who's more technically proficient you yes. were saying, right? And and what I'd really like to delve into is how this this applied to to your career, uh, specifically from a commercial data perspective, because uh, I think that's a, that's a really unique one. Because commercial is also about messaging, more so maybe maybe with marketing as well. But but if we look at uh, for example, like biologics, it's, it kind of plays less of a role. So how has um, how has uh, these soft skills played that role? Whether it's like uh, getting that sponsorship from the executives, or or a couple of war stories, maybe that where uh, storytelling specifically impacted um, your your role and and getting uh, getting business improvement. Let's say. Yeah, no, I think even I'm thinking back to some of the the earlier time I spent at Takeda building the Intivio infrastructure. I think with Intivio. Just a little bit of background. This is a biologic drug that is, um, it's kind of a niche thing. It's called buy and bill, which is where the physicians actually buy the product and have it in their office. And then they bill the patient's insurance when they infuse it. So it's something that's administered with an infusion or use it, you know, with an IV. Mm. Um, and I think that whole model is a much more business to business kind of an interaction because you're actually having the physicians invest money in the product and then get reimbursed. And so it does create a whole different kind of mindset that certainly at the time at Takeda was relatively new. Most of the products that Takeda had been uh, working on had been more kind of classic retail pill products where the physician's choosing to write a prescription, but they have nothing to do with the business interactions, right? They're just saying this patient needs this, this drug and I'm going to write a script and, you know, pharmacies will take care of it. It will not, I'm not involved in that part. Whereas with um, with Intivio, you did have to kind of invest as a physician in the product. So 
the infrastructure and the amount of detail we needed to know about, you know, where we were sending these products and who was buying them and all that was just very different from a script kind of based product. So that's just some context to understand why the infrastructure had to be really different too, because the tracking levels and the and sort of the way that you use these products uh, is is just completely different. And so as a result of that, you know, going into the executive team who was much more familiar with that pharmacy world and helping them understand the nuance of what it looks like when you're essentially pivoting from a um, you know B to C to kind of a B to B sort of relationship with your your customer, and it's a selling relationship. It's it's a very different thing. And so I think for me that was a big part of the the storytelling was really around how different. We're going to go to market, and and I think most of the folks who were joining Takeda at that time had come from experience doing this. So it was great because we're building a team around this new way of working. But you still had folks who had hadn't had as much experience with it. So I think what was nice about it is leveraging the the other experts who had done this before mm. as part of the story, right? So like you know bringing in a team of people. So very different approach there. We have a whole. Um, kind of like an Avengers model where you have all these different people with different expertise around the same issue to kind of come together and collaborate to solve problems for for this new product um, versus perhaps some other, you know, products where almost everyone understands what's happening. Um, so I think the, the war story of it was really just having to first realize that folks weren't aware of how things work and then helping them learn and bringing along a lot of different people across the whole organization to get on the same page. And that does require kind of an assessment of how, where, how, in fact, if anything, I think I adjusted off a lot of marketing skills, right? To say, where are we at our awareness and adoption curve for each of the different stakeholders and kind of mapped them and then thought about what would be needed to get them further along that adoption curve. Um, so I think if anything, the, the challenge there is really getting folks comfortable to be vulnerable enough to say, I don't really know how this works. <laughs> um, and then have that conversation. That's okay. Like that's all good, but here's kind of what we want to do. Um, and so I think with that, it, it allowed me to kind of build out the justification, frankly, for a pretty significant investment, because if you haven't built any of these infrastructural pieces before, you're going to have, you're going to need more people, you're going to need more money. And I think especially the number of folks you need to build something like this was a little bit shocking to mm. the leadership compared to the kind of prescription data tends to come all kind of packaged and nicely ready to go. Whereas the, the buy and build space is much more like, you know, trade data feeds from each specialty pharmacy and each distributor. And you're kind of piling it all together and doing all of the sausage making yourself. Um, so I think there was a lot of really interesting kind of challenges there with data production, but control, right? You're building mm -hmm. it yourself. So if you think about literally making a sauce, you have a lot more control over what ends up in the final product. You know, sausages from the grocery store don't, you just get what you get. And so I think there's actually some really cool uh, value in that story and how to get people comfortable with the, the level of detail we're going to get into, right? To get the answer um, correct. Yeah, and this is a really good case study for how uh, storytelling helped accelerate that 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 yes. um, that harsh change, right? In the in the whole uh, business model of the of that particular drug, right? And, and and I really I really love that because this probably played a massive role during the the Shire acquisition as well, right? You know, bringing on thousands of people and and changing that that whole organizational mindset. I mean, without, without going to the the technical detail, I imagine the, the technology side is a whole other ball game. But what were some <laughs> yeah. of the the big challenges from a from a data transformation perspective? in terms of that onboarding? 
Right. Well, and I think what's also important with Takeda and Shire is they're both similar in size. And especially in the U.S., I think Shire was actually probably a little bigger than Takeda in the U.S. because Takeda is a Japanese-based company. And so Shire was more pivoted toward mm. the U.S. So the the challenge I saw immediately was just that breadth of different go-to-market models across the different products. So Takeda had really like two, kind of this Intivio model with the buy and bill and then the prescription model. But the Shire portfolio has this very unique set of, of products that included things like this plasma-derived therapy space where you're actually collecting human plasma and then using it to make products. And then sort of, you know, that's like a whole supply chain, totally different thing where your supply is based on humans um, and donations. And so that's one other model. And then there were some mix of, of lots of different kind of rare disease products that are a couple hundred patients taking the product. So just very different way to go to market when you're only talking to a few hundred people. Um, and so I think that was the first thing was really to look at the portfolio and think about what the portfolio strategy was going to mm -hmm. have to look like across, you know, the 50 or so different products that we had in the market across the two companies. And then figuring out between all the different capabilities of the two companies, you know, kind of trying to simplify that decision-making process into something of a framework. So a big part of that was, do we have, you know, what do we have in each company? What's the closest thing to the equivalent of, of this thing? So whether it's like master data management or specialty data or um, like a CRM system, you know, customer relationship management system, what's, what's the same and what's different? And in a lot of cases, there were some pretty strong similarities. You'd imagine mm -hmm. people come to the same conclusion, you know, they answer, they end up with the same kinds of products and solutions for the same problems. However, there are different ways of thinking about the problems and, and obviously different mindset. And even more, I think, tricky was the terminology. This is one thing I'll never forget was we were using the same phrase or same words to talk about completely different things. And so everyone's like, you know, how's, what's your, what's your product master look like? And you describe it. And, and then you'd say, well, that's not at all what a product master is. A product master is this. And so you'd have this, we're both, we both have something called product master and mm. it's just completely different beasts. And so that I think was a big part of, of when you bring two cultures and two groups of people together and they all have a common understanding of language instead of, figuring that out, it takes a while because you're both like, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm going to work on the product master. Okay. And and then ultimately we figured out that they were different. They were not at all comparable things. They were the one was about market baskets and all the different competitor products. The other was more about the products that were being sold by the company. So they just do weren't the same thing. And so I think there's some of that learning from really drilling in. And I do this now in every context where I say, when you say, you know, operating model or something that ha has a component of vagary to it, just describe to me what that is. So I understand what you're talking about when you say that thing. And so that for me mm -hmm. has actually been something I use all over the place since then um, as a really valuable tool to really absolutely double check that I understand what the other person's talking about. And it's actually pretty incredible how often words and even, you know, when you talk about stakeholders, like when you say stakeholders, who are, <clears throat> who are you talking about? Which stakeholder group are you describing? Is it external you know, customer people? Is it other people inside of our company? Mm. Is it just people within our team? You know, So I think there's a lot of opportunity with integration to clarify um, just language. And then obviously from there, learn about the different processes. But we, we tried to build a lot of our framework around what is basically identical and we just pick one or the other thing. What is you know really better on one side or the other? In some cases, there was something that was just way better and everyone was happier with it on 
the Shire side or the Takeda side. So we just, great, mm. let's just go with that. Let's just choose that one. Um, and then there were some where nobody was happy with what they had currently. And so that was where we really focused our effort to say, I guess we need to build something new because nobody's happy. Um, and so that's, I think, where we spent the bulk of our time, right, was building the new things that were probably the most painful on both sides. They'd always been annoying. So it's kind of that when you're um, moving into a new house, right, you're going to have to figure out which things really annoy you about the new house that you really, nobody likes it. Let's just tear it out and put a new one in or whatever. Mm. Um, and so that was where I think a lot of the work went into. And of course, those things tended to be more infrastructural, data-related technology things, right? So data warehouses, um, master data management systems. Those were the things we focused on and spent the most effort on just because they they often are not as satisfying on both sides. Um, so it was an opportunity to really gut out that bathroom and rebuild it once and for all kind of thing. Um, yeah. So so that's that was a lot of the journey. But I think the terminology was the thing that stuck with me the most, like really asking people, describe what you mean when you say this word so that I am on the same page as you because I have a mental picture of what that word means and it might be completely different. Um, than what you think yeah, and this is just a, a hallmark of, of good communication is actually uh, dialing it back and making sure that, that every, everyone's initiatives are embraced and understood in the in the right way. Because if you if you don't have that same messaging at the start, if you're building on these these foundations that aren't uh, aren't straight or aren't aligned, then that the house isn't isn't going to be it's not going right. to it's not going to it's going to fall down eventually. So actually taking that step back and and taking it to to the base level, I think was 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 a really good strategy, and it, it sounds like it worked out as well. So. Uh, Another question I have, which is which kind of like a, I do like to ask this on, on most of the shows because everyone has a different answer. What do you think actually defines the word data drivenness? That's an interesting question. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's about a mindset where when you have a um, an action to take or a decision to make that you first think about what data do we have that can help you know inform that decision. So when you think about data-driven decision-making or data-driven activities, whatever, I, I think to me, it's about knowing and thinking about data first and going to the data as your first point of, of entry into the problem to try to decide what to do. That is that is going to be, it's a habit you have to build over time. Because I think there's a lot of um, you know, earlier on, I think people didn't tend to think of data as a possible source for a decision or an action to take. And now slowly I'm watching that shift happen where people proactively are reaching out to me and my team and saying, do we have any data on this? Can we, can we inform this decision with something? You know, do we have a report? Do we have an analysis that we've already done? Or do I need to do one to answer this very new specific question? And so that to me is how data-driven becomes. It's a cultural thing. It's not a a specific process, but I think it's that idea of almost like search before create, right? Like you're searching for data before you create something new. And then you're also using data as the first point mm. of entry to answer a question. So, so in that sense, it's almost like a, a center of excellence for, for data that's, that's proactive yeah. that we're, and, and actually that proactivity doesn't, doesn't, can't just come from the data team. You can't just be the, the data team reaching out to say, hey, what business problems do you need solving? It's also when when you get to that level and you, you grease the wheels of the culture, uh, it's actually people reaching out to you, as you said just then, and be like, hey, do we have any data where we can create this? And then you you work in that collaborative collaboration, you create that story, and then you you solve a business problem or or you create business value or you change an operating model for, for the better for everyone, right? Yeah, uh, which so I, I think, think that's, that's when you know it's working is when people reach out to you 
um, and say, I was in a situation where I had to make a decision and I realized I'd like your help, right? I want a collaborative partner from the data team to help me make this decision. Like, I think that's the proof in the pudding, right? That you actually see people come to you rather than you having to proactively reach out to them. And I think that's what we, you know, certainly in the last, I'll say six months to a year, as we've kind of matured as a team, we see more and more examples of that where the team is the you know business leaders, marketers, salespeople even are pinging my team and saying, I need some, I think I need some data to make this decision. I want to use data to make my decision. And, and or I've made a decision. I don't think it's very good. I'd like some data to fix the decision I just made. You know, like that's even in some ways more um, heartening because it's sort of that realization that maybe data would have helped this decision if I'd had it at the time. Um, so I think that's really been to me that the joy comes when I have those emails from someone I don't even really know who's, you know, far away saying, somebody gave me your name. I think you're the person who can help me figure out how to make a better decision or, or move forward. Can you help me? You know, that's, that's really satisfying because that mm -hmm. does mean that we're data driven. We want data to drive how we make decisions, how we move forward. Um, mm -hmm. But it takes time. I don't think we had those, those kinds of conversations early on. Most of the time people, either they knew they had some data and they'd use it, or they didn't even think of data at all as a possible source for how to make a decision. So it's, it takes, I would say, at least a year plus before we started to see that happen. A lot of these, you know, any kind of change of behavior is going to take a long time. But the cool thing is now we have these examples and stories that we can then share with other folks as, as we go. And I think the story, it's really important to take that moment to kind of honor a cool moment with data mm. where you made a decision with data and it helped and it was better. And sometimes I think we're moving so fast to the next thing that we don't tell that story and take that time. So that's what I, I would say from a, the kind of the proof you get is when people are coming to you with concern or question, that's very exciting to me. Mm. Uh, and the first time that happened, was it kind of like a, a, a an oh my gosh moment or did it, did that come gradually over increments when people kept doing it and you're like, wow, this is, this is happening now. How did that, how did that feel? Yeah, I think it was slower. It wasn't all at once. Unfortunately, there was just like a floodgate opening of people asking for data. But I, I do think what was happening is there's a bit of that, you know, uh, flywheel effect, right? Where you get someone who comes in a little unsure whether they're going to get any value out of asking for help, but then feeling more than satisfied with what they've gotten from the team um, and, and then they tell other people. And so pretty soon a couple people that they know are coming and saying, I heard from this person, this is valuable and so on. And so there's this nice snowball effect that we're seeing now where, um, and I think even more exciting is people who had historically had nothing to do with our team slowly saying, maybe there's something here. Maybe it's worth switching and asking for help. Maybe this will make my project easier or, you know, whatever it is. And so that I think is also really exciting to see the the slow and steady increase in excitement around data. And the I think the degree to which our team is starting to be almost like, you know, co-branded with data is, mm. is actually not an accident, right? You know, even if it simplifies things for people, they're the data team, you know, that has its baggage, right? Because anytime anything goes wrong with any data anywhere, I also get a call. But I think it's worth it to have that excitement and joy and people seeing data and seeing it and saying, oh, that's the data team that made that happen mm. too. So it's kind of, it's, you always have to deal with that as well. Um, but I, I feel like it's made a nice impact on kind of the, the way people make decisions, the way people see data in the solution set for a problem. It's just very satisfying to see that happening. 
Yeah, and and with moving moving too fast, I think that's a really key point to make, and, and I, I just want to make a comment on that because I think yeah. that uh, when you do move too fast, it, it reminds me of this this stat I read years ago. Whether it's still true or not, is that one bad review, it takes you like twelve or thirteen good reviews to to. to that's how the, the customer reaction balances out. And that's the same with the, the data function, right? If you have one bad project, it's going to take you way more projects to, to actually, uh, you know, regain that trust. And, and I think trust is a huge part about what, what we, what we like to talk about here. So what have you found that are the best ways to build and facilitate trust? Sure. Well, I think, you know, first thing I'll, I'll just, one of my favorite trust metaphors that I use often is that you, you, um, you build trust in teaspoons but you lose it in buckets. Mm. So when things go wrong, to your point, it's like you just knock the trust bucket over and now you got to get out your spoon and then start shoveling back into the bucket. And so I do think that's something I talk about a lot with my team when we have one of those bucket dumps and they happen. I mean, data is just kind of by its nature, sort of chaotic and entropic. And so you always have something going on. Like, I think that's just realistic to say there's always going to be a, a file that doesn't load right or whatever. But when you try to build trust, to me, it's first immediately saying, hey, this didn't work. There's something wrong. This is broken. That transparency is so key to getting things back on track. Because if you have people feel like you're not being honest with them about the problem itself, then you're even you're digging the hole deeper and probably dumping another bucket over and kind of causing more problems. So I think that's the first thing I always tell my folks is just acknowledge the problem is real. They're not, no one's making that up. You're right. That isn't working or that file is wrong or that number looks wrong. You're right. Um, and then I think also saying we're going to seek to understand what happened. You know, we're going to get to the root of why this happened, you know, so that ideally would never happens again. Um, I would say that's one of my biggest pet peeves is when you find a mistake and you don't go back and figure out why it happens and, and actually, you know, mediate that issue. So that a couple of days later or a week later, or a month later, whatever it is, the same exact thing happens. Then I'm a little bit more frustrated with the situation because it feels like we could have prevented that particular... I mean, there's going to be something new and exciting. There's always a new way to have something go you know, wrong. But let's not repeat. <laughs> We've got enough problems and to repeat the exact same issue another time. you know. So that's something I think for me has been a, a mantra of how I build that trust is to say, you're right. This is not working. We're going to get to the bottom of it and we're going to put something in place that will prevent that thing from ever happening mm -hmm. again. And then from there, I say, but I can't promise that something new and exciting won't happen, you know, tomorrow. Like, I don't know, but at least I can tell you with confidence that that particular problem is, is dealt with. And so that's sort of how we slowly build uh, back from things that go wrong. And you certainly have moments where things really don't load or don't work and, and helping people understand a little bit of the, of the nitty gritty is also helpful. I tend to actually give a little detail, you know, like mm. there was a piece of code that didn't run right, or, you know, this timed out or something enough that people say, okay, so it is something technical that I don't want to know, but I'm glad you're on it and you figured it out, you know? So I think that's a big part of it too, is that transparency and then ideally remediating it in a way that it never happens again. So. Yeah. And, and just tying back in, you mentioned that there's now a really good relationship between data and the, and the rest of the business. How did you approach the the educating the organization in terms of the you know letting letting the the rest of the organization know you guys exist and you can solve x y z problem or you can help them with you know y z yeah yeah i think part of it is consistent messaging like this again it goes back to my marketing from um, my mba i think i draw from that more than i expected <laughs> um you know we have what i call a walk around deck and it's just a few slides like four or five slides that explain 
who we are, why we do what we do, what the impact is, um, and then a little bit of like who to go to for what kind of thing. So that when you, when you do have a an opportunity to meet a new stakeholder, um, and my leadership team has been kind of practicing and training on this too. So I've got a nice little group of folks who can all say the same messaging. Um, it, it helps, I think, to have that four or five slide deck as an intro to any new employee, to anybody who is coming into the team, you know, any new hires on my team get that information right away. And so that consistency of just the, the first couple slides, especially around our mission and vision, have not changed in two years. They've been exactly the same. And that's on purpose. I would, it would take a lot for me to change them because hopefully we set up a mission and a vision that lasts several years. It's not, you know, quarter by quarter or something. Mm. So I think that's one way that you can help get the stakeholder community, the data enthusiast community aligned with what you're doing. If you're just really consistent, you know, data as a strategic asset, I must say that over and over and over. Um, because it does give people, I, I think, confidence that we're not, you know, changing our minds about what we're trying to be. You know, it's very consistent. So there's an element of trust there too. That's another way to build trust, just being consistent, right? So doing what you said you were going to do mm. and then doing it again and so on. I think that really helps people feel comfortable. And a lot of the work we do is the same thing every day, every week, every month. So there's a bit of that kind of value and consistency. But that's, I think, the main thing. I've, I've done that each time I've had each of these different roles is having like a few slides that explain that I can pull up and show and, and kind of do mm. my spiel, as I call it, um, anytime I need to. And I've helped get, you know, now I have my, my direct reports, I'll do the same thing and they're comfortable doing that. So that helps. There's a few more people who can do the spiel um, yeah. in the organization as we grow. But that is, to me, it's not, there's no, unfortunately, there's no easy button for that one. You have to just kind of tell people what you're doing and tell them again and tell them again. And slowly they kind of remember it um, because that's marketing, right? It's kind of mm. competitive, consistent, all those things. So I think there's a lot of marketing in this that I didn't expect when I went into it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to shoot that like a, it's so short as well, four to five slides and it's the elevator pitch, right? It's, it's to, yes. to create intrigue and to, to, to get people thinking on their own and then uh, get more invested in, 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 in data. Uh, so, so a question again, another one I really like to ask is, uh, how do you see your role in the business, your current role, let's say? Are you uh, a firefighter? Are you, um, you know, a data champion, an evangelist, all of this, something else? You know, it, it does vary day to day. It depends on what's happening. Um, I, I think one of the things I often say is I see myself for my team anyway as kind of an umbrella. I tend mm. to try to protect them from the sort of distractions or things that <clears throat> shouldn't be on their radar screen so they can really do excellent work. And I tend to try to seek out people who know way more than I do about whatever it is we're doing. So my whole leadership team has way deeper experience in each area than I've ever had. And I, that's on purpose. I'm very happy to have people who are smarter than me as my mm -hmm. team. Um, so I, my role is really to protect them and keep them from having um, issues that might slow them down or cause them trouble. Or if they need resources, they need buy-in, you know, that's kind of my role is to help them with that. And then I would say the other part of my role is the, I'm the hype woman. I call myself mm -hmm. for my team um, because I do have a lot of, you know, classically quieter, um, maybe less interested in getting up in front of a big group of people and talking uh, people on my team because they they really love data. They like <laughs> to have put on put on headphones and write code, and you know, so that's a very different personality type. Um, so I'm very sensitive to that. I don't want to put people who would would just absolutely rather die than give a public speech 
the the task of doing a public speech. So that's where I tend to play a role, I think, is hyping up the value of the team. Um, and I'm I'm not so great about talking about my own things, but I'm so excited to talk about and brag about my team. I will do that all day long. So so that's really fun for me is to go out and tell stories about what my team's been mm-hmm. doing and the impact it's made. And I think they now know that they can they can give me that information and I will share it for them and they don't have to share it, but then they're much more willing to tell me about what they've been working on because they are excited themselves. Um, and so that's been a huge part of, I think what works well, you know, I'm, I'm okay with going out in front of a group and talking and that's helped my team, I think, to be seen as, you know, their, what their expertise is, is can be shared much more easily by me maybe than they can share it about themselves. Mm. So I think that works well. It's a good, it's a good combo that we have. And then we also do talk about, we talk, we use a lot about superpowers, like different superpowers that people have. Like some people are really good at day in and day out operational, like just really consistent and they can, and they love it. They love the daily kind of like routine. Um, and then other people are better at creating something new or envisioning a different way of doing things or blowing stuff up and re- redesigning it. So making sure we leverage those different skills. Mm. Um, I'm really sensitive to having a diverse team too. That's something I'm really proud of building out a team, both from the more macro, like, you know, we are 55% female. That's kind of unusual in the data space to have so many women. And also I think, you know, I try to make sure we have a nice diversity of experience, background, race, gender, all those things, but then also diversity of thought. That's another big, I'm really passionate Mm. about having different personalities and different thinkers um, I forced my poor team to go through kind of one of these personality assessments, the um, insights, colors. It's kind of a, it's also called DISC, D-I-S-C. There's a couple of different versions of this, but these are essentially getting it at what, what is your kind of energy? How do you like to work? How do you like to engage with other people? Um, what's your communication style? Things like that. And so we talk a lot about the different ways you can approach problems, right? The thoughtful ways, the jump into action ways, and in all the different ways you can probably tackle a problem. And having a nice mix of thinkers to me is so critical to, to really having all the perspectives. So we have thought about it in a lot of different ways. And that's something I think that allows us to really tackle problems more effectively because we're coming at them from a lot of different angles. And then the best sort of thinking ultimately wins out for what to do. So that's a, that's a big part of what I feel like for a team dynamic is to have that diversity of thought. So we have Mm. talkers like me and the team. We also have some much quieter people on the team and, you know, trying to make space for the quieter folks. It's something I'm always conscious of. Um, You know, we haven't heard from this person. What's going on? What are you thinking? You know, that kind of thing. Um, And I think in a virtual space, it's been even harder, but we've managed to, to figure it out that way too, um, because this team started in March of 20. So we've always been basically a virtual first kind of organization. So it's been an interesting curveball that we're, mm. as everyone is, we're navigating. Well, well, Jane, it's been a fantastic interview. Um, lots of really great insights for, for, for the guys. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Last couple of questions. What made you fall in love with data analytics and what do you like most about your job? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a fun one. Um, you know, I, I really love the idea that this skill set of, you know, organizing and systematizing kind of pieces of information into a really great insight. You know, that's the most exciting part when you take all this disparate data and come up with, you know, a really amazing, just, you know, a spark of like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that those things happen. Um, that I, I got very lucky that I actually, when I was in college, I got to spend a summer as an intern at Amgen, which is one of the bigger biotech companies in Los Angeles, and finding out that you could write code to 
predict the kind of way patients would feel and their outcomes and how drugs could affect them and make them feel better. I mean, that just kind of like blew my mind as a you know young person and that you could use data and technology to do that when I was an engineering student. So the idea that my engineering background could somehow be useful to help patients like live longer just was such a cool combination for me. So I very I got very lucky that I fell into this space at like 21. Mm. Um, but I think what I love about my job is is actually now over time, as I've become a leader of people, I, I get really excited when I have opportunities to meet younger folks who are just starting out. Actually, just are we have summer interns this summer. I had coffee with one of our summer interns yesterday. And the energy of folks who are just getting into this space is so contagious and lovely. And so I think probably the thing I love the most about my job is helping to inspire the next generation of leaders. That sounds very lofty, but I think it's just it hits me that that's a big part of what is so exciting about where we are in the evolution of data as a function that when I was starting out, it was very new. I don't think people really knew it was going to become it's what it is mm. today. And I mean, even data science, data engineering, none of those things really existed yet. And so even meeting with one of our, you know, she's a, I think she's going into her sophomore year of college, so she's probably like 19 years old. Uh, to have that conversation and see her looking at me and saying, I want to do this. This is what I want to be. I mean, that's so exciting and inspiring. And that's probably my favorite thing, being able to do that and work with folks who are coming into the space and falling in love with it and watching them fall in love with it. So I think that's, it kind of goes together, but just the fact that I got so lucky to fall into it so early hmm. um, and then to be able to be hopefully giving people the spark that I feel about what data can do and how all that comes together to really in the case of pharma, at least like help people to live better lives, which is just the best reason to do anything. It certainly gets you up early in the morning. So so what advice would you give for aspiring data leaders with that in mind? Yeah. I, you know, I think the main thing I would say is that sometimes it does feel a little like you're swimming upstream in this space. It's a newer thing. And it's not um, it's not the standard way of a career building. I think there's a lot more momentum to take you maybe into other areas. And so I would say just stick with it. You know, keep keep being passionate about data. I think it's the data geeks are the right kind of geeks for me at least. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people like you out there. You just have to find them. And I think sometimes that's also important too to realize you're not alone. There are other people that really find data to be fun. Um, and so finding that community, finding the data enthusiasts around you, I think is so important. So that's another thing I would say is, you know, get, get into a community early and find other folks that do what you do or that, you know, you think you want to do. And that's what actually the advice I gave my summer intern was like, spend some time with people who do the thing you think you want to do. So you can really understand what it looks like. Um, and hopefully what they love about it is what you love to do too. Otherwise there could be a mismatch there. So that's, I think, really important as you're getting started. Mm. Well, Jane, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, again, great conversation. Lots, lots of really good insights and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Yes. Thanks so much, Paul. It's been great spending time with you today.